0: As the children are uh, dismissed for their class, let's uh, turn to John 16 once again. Uh, Allow me to pray uh, briefly, and then we'll look at uh, John 16, verse 4b through verse 15 here, what we read earlier. Uh, together, as we continue our way through Jesus' final words to his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16, and then we'll head into John 17 uh, before we conclude uh, our time in the Gospel of John. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that it is finished on the cross. No work left for us to do. Father, I pray that we would put down not only our sin, but also the righteousness that we trust in so often, but that we would trust in Christ's righteousness alone for our standing. We pray that you would strengthen us through your word, by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we continue in the Gospel of John, the context is the exact same as last week. And the tone is the same as last week. Jesus is still addressing his disciples. It's still Thursday night. They've likely left the upper room and are starting to walk, as indicated at the end of, of chapter 14. But he's still with them, still with the 11. Final words. They're making their way to the garden. Judas will there betray, betray Jesus. Jesus will be arrested. Peter will deny the Savior. Jesus knows the cross is coming the very next day. So he's preparing his disciples, right? He's preparing them for all of this. We said last week, Jesus is leaving. Hatred from the world is coming. But so is the Spirit. The disciples have been with Jesus for years. And he's telling them now these instructions, these final instructions. Because they weren't ready then. But he's leaving now. And they need to know this. Those of you that are parents have undoubtedly come to this realization that if you know you're going away on a trip you don't tell your kids except for when they need to know which is really right before the trip right they don't need to know they they don't know the difference between dinner tonight and next thursday they don't need to know that you're going somewhere in a month a month out right and and then as it gets closer and you're about to leave that's when you give the instructions right you're you're leaving that's when you give the instructions that's when That's when they're most ready to hear it. That's when they most maybe feel the need to hear it. Like, okay, we're we're leaving. Uh, I mean, uh, they're leaving. My parents are leaving. I need to hear what I'm going to need to know, who's going to be watching me, what I'm going to be up to, what's the schedule, da 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 da, And they'll have their questions, right? That's what we have right here, right? Jesus knows they're ready for it now because he's leaving now. It's Thursday night, and they have questions. We saw some of these in chapter 14, like, where are you going? Why aren't you taking us? Can we go there? How can we go there if we don't know, the w- we don't know where you're going? We can't know the way. They got questions. It just reminds me of me trying to leave the home with my wife on a date, right? They're like, okay, wh- what was happening? Oh, you're leaving now? Boom, 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 questions start coming, right? They're, they're ready to think through. Okay, now I want to think through. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is is leaving, And Jesus is so sensitive to them in love, right? He, he knows what they need in the moment, what they need to hear. Look down at verse, verse 12 of John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He knows exactly what they're ready for, exactly what they need, what they can handle at the right time. He gives them instructions. He informs them that there, he's going to be gone. He makes it clear that he's going to the Father who sent him. And Verse, verse 5, he notes kind of a funny thing. I think if you're reading, it, it's interesting, intriguing. I think there's a couple possible good explanations. But he says, none of you asked, where are you going? And if you've been kind of reading along, you know that's exactly what Peter asked. Peter literally had asked that. Where are you going? So perhaps Jesus maybe understood question, Peter's question from before was really, what about us? That's really what Peter was asking, right? Uh, but maybe, and probably more likely, Jesus is saying, well, not, right now, now at this point, it had been a few hours now, none of you are asking now this question. Still maybe caught up in themselves. Then look down at verse verse seven. End of verse six. Sorrow has filled your heart Jesus knows they're distraught. He notes their sorrow over all the things that he has said to them, over his soon departure. They expected the Messiah to come and power and establish his earthly kingdom. And now, wait, he's leaving us? We're going to be alone? And Jesus doesn't miss their sorrow. He doesn't miss their emotional state. He doesn't dismiss it. He notices it. He notes it. He talks about it there at the end of verse 6. Sorrow had filled their hearts. But notice his next words in verse 7. Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. I love that little exchange. Do you see what's happening, right? They are distraught. There is turmoil within. And Jesus doesn't see their sorrow and kind of match it with his own. There's a place for that, I think. But Jesus takes a different path, right? He he sees their sorrow and then matches it with truth. That's what they need. He knows the truth that can help orient his disciples in the fog of his imminent departure. He knows the truth that they're going to need in their sorrow, He's not being dismissive or kind of preachy to them. No, he's shepherding their hearts. He's seeing the need and bringing the appropriate truth for the moment to them. Not more than they can handle, but exactly what they need. Exactly what they can handle. So what does he say in verse 7? It's surprising, isn't it? It is to your advantage that I go away. Even even us, this you know, 2,000 years later, not having walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry for months and years, we still feel that as like, really? He says, this is, this is the truth you need. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's not how it seems to his disciples at all. It's not how they feel, but it's the truth they need. Jesus' ways are often surprising, aren't they? Jesus doesn't say, well, it's a wash, you know? I'm leaving, Spirit's coming, it's gonna be okay. No, he doesn't say it's a wash. He says, no, it's gain. It is gain. I am leaving, but the Spirit's work is gonna be so significant that it's actually to your advantage that I go so he can come. Isn't that amazing? The Spirit's work is going to be so significant in the lives of his disciples that it's actually to, to their advantage that he depart. That is, that he go to the cross, the grave, resurrected, and then ascended to the Father. So, so we are left asking the question, what, what is so significant about the Spirit's work that it could actually be to their, to our advantage that Jesus is not still amongst us? The Spirit's work, friends, must be super-duper significant, right? I mean, like, really significant if that is a truth that's going to comfort these disciples in their distress. Do you see that? The the Spirit's work can't be just small shakes. It's got to be pretty significant, I think, if the truth that they need to comfort them in their sorrow is... The work is so significant that it's actually better if he leaves so the Spirit can come. So we want to ask the question of them, what is that? What is the nature of the Spirit's work? And we're going to see two aspects here in what Jesus teaches them next, beginning in verse 8. First, we're going to see the Spirit's work convicting the world of its sin. And then we're going to see the Spirit's work guiding his disciples into the truth. Those aren't small things. Those are massive things. And the disciples needed those things needed those truths, needed those realities of the Spirit's work, and, and so do we, and so do we. Point number one, only two points this morning. Point number one, convicting the world of its sin. That's significant. This week I read, rough count, probably about seven different commentators or theologians or authors on, on these verses, verses six, sorry, eight through 11. And and there's a very broad sweep of views as to how to take these verses. I'm just going to say that up front. I'm not going to tell you the four views. I'm going to give you what I think is the right one. Uh, Happy to talk with you afterwards here. We can read them, and if we're not careful, we can just kind of move over them. We can be intimidated by Jesus' words. He talks about sin and righteousness and judgment. Those are like big religious words. And we think, well, where's, where's the good stuff? I'll just keep reading. Or we can just kind of assume, well, whatever comes to my mind when Jesus says judgment, that must be what he means. And whatever comes to my mind when I hear the word righteousness, that must be what Jesus means and, and, and move on like that. But no, we want to slow down. We want, we want to read these verses. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 again in just a moment. And as I do, I want you to notice two things two things. So, Jesus is going to list three things. So, I want you to note the things that Jesus lists, right? There's three of them. I think it'll be fairly obvious. He, he gives them, and then he explains them. But I want you also, secondly, I want you to notice how Jesus assumes that these three things hold together. They're parallel. They're not unrelated, they're in a line, they're of a sort, they're grouped together. So I want you to notice both of those things, what the three things are, and then how Jesus sees them as parallel. So if you have a copy of God's Word, eyes down in John 16, 8, as I read, or just listen, and when He comes, that is, the Spirit, the Helper, the one that Jesus is going to send, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, And righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, that Spirit, he will convict the world. This is where the debate of this passage begins, right? What does this mean? What does it mean? Well, the word used here for convict is is translated in other passages variously. That is, it has a kind of a whole breadth of possible meanings that, of course, we have to use the context to determine. So it could mean reprove or rebuke or expose or tell or what our passage here has as convict. I think Jesus means that the Holy Spirit will bring the world to the point of recognizing its wrongdoing. Right? He's gonna bring it to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. He's gonna point out the wrongdoing to the world, that is, those in the world. And since the Spirit is never wrong, He's not merely accusing them of something kind of frivolously, He's trying, or He's not merely trying to kind of convince them. No, he's convicting. Them. He's indicting the world. He's not off the mark. He's nailing it. He's going to bring the world to the point of recognition regarding what is true of themselves. They are in the wrong. They are sinners. They are guilty. You say, Pastor Ross, that is, that's great. That's what, would, that's what I was thinking. Super. You're doing good. So then how do we take that definition of convict and apply it to righteousness? Right, sin, convicting of sin, we get that, right? We use that language, the Lord convicted me of a sin. Great, praise the Lord. How do we think through conviction of righteousness, and then even maybe stranger, convictor, uh, conviction of judgment? And this is where our, our initial observation serves us. These aren't just three kind of categories. These are actually in parallel. They're being held together. So we have sin, but then we also have righteousness and judgment, How is the world convicted of righteousness? Judgment. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. The Spirit will convict the world of, we could use the word to help us here, its sin and its self-righteousness or supposed righteousness and its wrong judgment. So because the word convict is used of wrongdoing consistently... And I think in this context, and because the three items are parallel, I think that's what Jesus is saying, right? The Spirit is going to convict the world of its sin and its self-righteousness and its wrong judgment, particularly about Jesus sending him to the cross. I think this is what we see both specifically and generally in the book of Acts, isn't it? The Spirit comes and works through the preaching of the word, To bring the world to the point of recognizing its sin and its self-righteousness and its judgment. Perhaps, again, most clearly in the death of Jesus. Let me read to you a passage from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4. Notice this. Peter and John uh, have just been arrested. It's not really a sermon. It's kind of a speech of sorts. Let's pick up in in Acts 4 verse 5. You can just listen. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set Peter and John in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Note this now. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers... Of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I think Peter and John were listening to John 14, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then notice their response. And now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived, That they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The whole chapter in Acts 4 is about what? Filled with the Spirit, the disciples spoke boldly. They proclaimed boldly of sin, of self-righteousness, of wrong judgment of the religious leaders, especially in the death of Jesus. The apostles were not not holding back anything. They said, you killed him, (laughs) You put him to death wrongly. He was the righteous one. He was the rock. He's the one you were to build your life on. Notice then that Jesus' use of the word conviction isn't primarily a feeling. That's how we use the word, right? Man, it was like 9 o'clock, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to watch what I eat, but I had ice cream. I had ice cream feel convicted. No, no, that's not as all what's going on here, right? This is an indictment. This is bringing someone to recognize wrongdoing before God. It often will result in a feeling of of guilt, sure, but it's much more than that. And Jesus began this work through his earthly ministry, right? Indicting the religious leaders, indicting the self-righteous, indicting those who are making wrong judgments about righteousness and justice in God's kingdom. Spirit continues this work with greater geographical spread through the apostles, through the church over decades and over centuries and over millennia now. So in the book of Acts, it's through the preaching of the gospel, it's through the witness of the church that the Spirit is doing this work. Remember Jesus' words at the end of, of chapter 15, just a few verses up, and when the helper comes whom I will send, To you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. You will be my witnesses. I I will use your preaching and your proclamation and your bearing witness to convict the world regarding its sin and its self righteousness and its wrong judgment. You and I will bear witness, and we aren't alone, as we saw last week, but the Spirit will help us, bringing the world to the point of recognizing its sin as the truth of the gospel is proclaimed. And we live lives consistent with that truth, one sinner at a time. As he repents, she repents, and believes in Christ. I think that's what he's getting at. Now let's, let's step down verses 9, 10, and 11, right? He gives the three, and then he expounds them each. And we want to just comment on those briefly. So verse 9, concerning sin... Because they do not believe in me, Jesus said. Those who believe in Jesus also believe in what Jesus has said about their own guilt. Right? So, to trust in Jesus is to trust Jesus when he says, We're a sinner in need of a Savior. The Spirit's convicting work enables the world to see that they're sinners, to see their need for a Savior. So, the Spirit is rescuing people out of the world. They believe in Jesus, so they're no longer of the world. What a gracious act the Spirit is doing in convicting the world of sin. Look at verse 10 concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. The world's righteousness is a false righteousness. In Jesus' day, kind of the quintessential example of this would be the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. They were exhibit A. In our day, we might think of examples kind of out there. We might think of maybe virtue signaling online, kind of a false righteousness. We might think of pursuing uh, a justice in the culture that's not based on God's standard at all, but on man's. I think Jesus often refers to, in, in John's gospel, and alludes to Isaiah. And maybe Jesus has in mind, I don't know. But a passage like Isaiah 64, where he talks about all our righteousness as filthy rags, right? That's not to say that the good things we do as Christians to the glory of God are not recognized by the Father and honoring to Him. It is to say the righteousness that we offer up to earn acceptance before God is nothing. It's filthy to Him. A righteousness It seeks to earn a right standing with God. It's pride. And the Spirit enables the Word to recognize this so-called righteousness for what it is. It's false. It's flimsy. It's futile. It's filthy. It's ultimately oppressive, right? It's wicked. And Jesus is no longer there using his ministry to convict of this empty righteousness but the spirit still is at work driving this conviction home. Look at verse 11. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Again the spirit enables the word to see, the world to see that it misjudged Jesus, misidentified his life, his identity, his significance, the significance of his life, death and resurrection that through the triumph of Christ on the cross over the grave the prince of this world stands condemned. As one commentator put it. I thought this was really helpful. If, if Satan stands condemned by the triumph of the cross, the false judgment of those who follow in his train is doubly exposed. The need for conviction of this false judgment is all the more urgent. And then he alludes back to John three thirty six. He says this, the world is condemned already and in desperate need to know its plight. And the Spirit is doing that work. Convicting, not missing the mark, nailing it. Condemned already, John three thirty six. So we must trust this. We trust the Spirit is in the world, convicting the world of its wrongdoing, of its sin. How does the Spirit do this? And here I think we have to go kind of pinch out, go beyond our passage, not beyond Scripture, but beyond our passage to see that this is always done through the Word of God. So the initial fulfillment, we might say, of Jesus' words here in and through the disciples in the book of Acts confirms this, right? It's the Word of God that the Spirit of God uses to convict the world. God uses the Bible to bring the world to a recognition of its wrongdoing, So the author of Hebrews can say, the word of God is like a sword and it fillets human hearts. It lays them open so that their sin is exposed and so that the spirit might bring conviction, deep conviction, a deep recognition of wrongdoing before a holy God. So how do we share the gospel in line with, consistent with what Jesus says is the spirit's work in our day? How do we do this? Well, we share more than just truths. Generally, we share the word. We use what the Spirit uses. The Spirit uses the word, God's word to convict the world of its sin. So when we speak, we want to speak God's word when we share a gospel track, we want to think through, okay, is this track yes, catchy? Will it will it get their attention? Will it hold their attention? Will it communicate clearly? But fundamentally, is it biblical? Does it use the Bible to share the gospel? We want to invite non-Christians to study the Bible with us so that they can see Jesus be introduced to the one who can rescue them from their sin. We want to learn verses that speak of God's redemption of sinners through Jesus. We want to remember that God made us and so all of us, you, me, and everyone you meet this week is needing to give worship to the king. Revelation 4:11, "Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, why? For you created all things." He's worthy of worship. Not to be ignored, not to be rebelled against, not to be sidelined, but worshiped. And yet we've all gone astray. Whoever does not obey the Son has not seen life, but the wrath of God remains on him, John 3 36. And yet, God, in His love, sent His Son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed His love. He gave His only begotten that that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. So the Spirit convicts the world of its sin. And it does that, he does that through the word of God. Second point here. Secondly, guiding, spirits work now, what's so significant about it? It's guiding Jesus' disciples into the truth. This is verses 12 through 15. Like so many of Jesus' uh, words here in this section, uh, it can be really tempting to read uh, these chapters and just jump 2,000 years and go straight from Jesus to us. And I want to encourage you that as you're interpreting the Bible, you want to first stop at them then before you get to us now. Right? What did it mean to them then And then, through reflection on the cross and the significance for us in the church, what does it mean for us now? So here's another great example. we got to just kind of stop, pause, don't assume, and say, okay, what does that mean to them? What did it mean then? And then, what is its meaning? What is its significance for us today in the church age? So notice who Jesus is addressing here. It's the same group he's been addressing all along, Right? So back in chapter 14, he talked about the role of the Spirit, and it would bring to remember, remembrance all the things that he has said. He's speaking to the eleven. He's speaking to his disciples. Those who have, John fifteen twenty seven been with him from the beginning. That can only mean these eleven. That's the them, right? That's who he's talking to. So down in verse 12 here in our passage, it's, it's them who cannot bear more now. Right It's literally these 12, or these 11, rather, that they can't hear anymore. They can't take any more con. He's talking to his 11 disciples. And what does he tell him? Look at verse 13. "When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. The you there is not Ross Shannon first and foremost. It's not you. It's you. it's these disciples. Right? These disciples guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, that is, to these 11, to the disciples, the things that are to come. So the Spirit of truth is going to guide Jesus' disciples into all truth. This is the, the truth is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the truth that they have been witnessing, and that through this, through this now, We have our Bibles. We have scripture regarding the person and work of Christ. So the gospel of John is part of the fulfillment of Jesus' words by the Spirit to bring what he has said and what he's done into remembrance so that we might read it and know it. This is exactly what Peter would say years later in in his letter. Men spoke from God as they were carried along. Or guided, Jesus' words, by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit guides. Scripture is not from the will of man, but from God through men as the Spirit carried them along, or Jesus' words here, guided them. So Jesus is speaking to them about what we would call the inspiration of Scripture. So just pause. This verse isn't about the Spirit guiding you to know which one of your friends is telling the truth. It's not guiding you. He's not guiding you to discern how to make this right decision or that right decision. Spirit is at work in times like that, but that's not what this is talking about here. Notice that in the next verse is really the end of verse 13 and down. Jesus anchors the Spirit's guidance to, to what? To who? To himself. Isn't that what we see? Look at the end of verse 13. For he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, that is, the Spirit, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me. That is, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, his work, his ministry, in guiding through the Scriptures will be to glorify who? Jesus. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, verse 15. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, the Spirit will glorify Christ. That's what he's saying. This is so important as we move from the them then to the us now. So we don't see the Spirit's work when we, I'll say first and foremost, we don't see the Spirit's work when we we talk about the Spirit more in the church. That's a, a wonderful thing to do. It's been said that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity, especially in Baptist churches, right? So it's good to talk about the Holy Spirit for sure. But we don't see the Spirit's work just when we talk about the Spirit more, or when we see certain sign gifts, or when we experience dramatic things in our life. No, we see the Spirit's work when Christ is exalted in the church. Don't miss it. Look at verse 14 again. We see the Spirit's work when Christ is exalted in the church, This is significant for us to see and to ponder. A church that makes much of the Son of God through the Word of God is a church where the Spirit is at work doing His work. Do you see that? So a church that makes much of Jesus through the Word is a church where the Spirit is at work. In the book of Acts, the apostles didn't come and preach the Spirit. No, what did they preach? The risen Christ. That's how we know the Spirit's at work in the book of Acts is because the risen Christ is preached. The risen Christ is proclaimed. The risen Christ is glorified. The Spirit declares the truth. And that truth is Jesus. Jesus is that truth. And now in the church, as his disciples today, the Spirit-inspired Word of God centered on Christ is central to what the Spirit is doing. So... How significant is the Spirit's work? It's so significant that it's to our advantage that Jesus is no longer with us. That is amazing. Amazing. Oh, how we need the Spirit of God at work in our witnessing, in our evangelizing, in our discipleship, in our parenting, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our church We need the Spirit's work, convicting of sin, yes, and guiding into truth, yes. So what do we do? What do we do? We pursue word-saturated, Christ-centered, Christ-shaped ministry. To live any other way is to live apart from the help of the Spirit. But to do ministry this way is to do it with the Spirit's help. In line with the Spirit, consistent with how the the uh, Jesus here promises, the Spirit is to work. Brothers and sisters, let's pursue, pursue living in line, in step with the Spirit. And how do we do that? We go back to the Bible. We live in obedience to the Bible. We pray and ask the Lord to be about His work by His Spirit in the world. Praise God, Jesus ascended and is seated. And praise God, he sent the spirit who is convicting the world of its sin. Convicting the world of its self-righteousness. Convicting the world of its false judgments. Praise God, Jesus ascended and sent the spirit who is guiding his disciples in the truth, now through the word, so that we might know how we ought to live, how we ought to respond. So let's live in accordance with, in step with the spirit, by living and centering our lives around Jesus and his word. Let me pray to those ends and then we will conclude in song. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church. You have not left us without your presence. You've not left us without your word. You've not gone silent. Thank you that you've given us your word and given us your spirit. And we pray that we would go out into the world and speak your word that you might bring conviction. We thank you that you tell the truth to a world through your word regarding its sin, its wrongdoing. So help us not just to speak, but to speak your words. To speak your truth. And Father God, I pray that you would help us not to understand your guidance as something mystical, but as first and foremost something biblical, through, in line with, consistent with the Bible. Father, thank you for how you guided the disciples, the apostles through inspiration to record your word that were carried along by the Spirit. And we pray that you would guide us, the church, today as we make much of Jesus, as we study your word. We pray now as we conclude and as we go from this place that you would strengthen us through your word by your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.